0: Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad you could be with us today. We are looking at a series of lessons from the book of Ezra, and this is our third Sunday to be looking at these lessons. We're using the Nazarene Quarterly as the basis for our lessons, and today's lesson comes from uh, June 21st. The title is, Let Go and Let God. And we're looking at the book of Ezra, the ninth chapter, verses five through 15. One of my favorite poems is a limerick by William Cosmo Monkhouse. And the the limerick is entitled, There Was a Young Lady from Niger. There was a young lady from Niger who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They returned from the ride with the lady inside and the smile on the face of the tiger. Now, the point of this is many times we imagine ourselves to be in control of a situation and then we find out we're not. We think we're riding the tiger. In reality, the tiger is about to devour us. And this is true of sin in our lives. You know, we coast along thinking we've got this under control that we can stop whenever we want to. But then sin ravages our lives and we wonder what in the world hit us. In today's lesson, we find Ezra having to deal with an outbreak of sin among the exiles. This sin threatened to undermine everything that they had been working for. The lesson focus is the idea that sin is a danger to God's people of every time period. So this lesson provides us with three principles for protecting ourselves from backsliding into sin. The first principle is the idea that to protect ourselves, we must realize that sin poses a danger to all Christians, no matter how long they've lived as Christians, no matter what position in the church they may hold. Secondly, to protect ourselves from sin, we need to be horrified and appalled at sin. We should never treat it lightly. And then finally, to protect ourselves from sin, we must confess and fully repent of sin when we are convicted of it. We have to trust in the mercy of God. Now, the background of Ezra, the people of Judah, they had been conquered by the Babylonians. The temple had been destroyed. The city of Jerusalem, many other towns had been uh, just annihilated People were killed. Many more were hauled off as slaves to Babylon. Only the poorest of the poor were left behind. And the Babylonians brought in other people from other lands to take the place of the ones that they had taken out. Now, though, the Babylonian Empire had been conquered by the Persians. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, he allowed those Israelites who wanted to, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to begin offering the sacrifices again. While most of the exiles remained in Babylon, there was a remnant who returned, and they began rebuilding the temple. They did not have an easy time of it, though. There was opposition from the pagan people, and this caused them to have to stop for a number of years. But finally, under King Darius, the Israelites were given permission to finish this, And so they they begin rebuilding the temple again and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And that is the story that we find in the in the Bible books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now this is the first time actually in the book of Ezra that we meet Ezra himself. Ezra was a priest. He could trace his lineage back to Aaron, to Moses' brother. He was well versed in the law of Moses. He had studied it intently. It says he devoted himself to studying and teaching the law. He was a scribe, one who interpreted and copied the law for the people. We're also told Ezra was righteous. Not only did he study the law, but he devoted himself to observing the law as well. Now, he wasn't one of the original group of exiles. He was sent by the Persian ruler Artaxerxes, to lead a second group of exiles back to Jerusalem. And with him, he took a gift of gold and silver from the king and his officials. He was sent back specifically to offer sacrifices, to complete anything that had been left undone. And he was also to teach the law to the people, and even to punish those who wouldn't obey the law. He was given the authority to set up judges and magistrates not only for the kingdom of Judah, but for the whole area. And so Ezra returns to the land of Judah. And after he has been there for about four months, he receives information that shocks him to his very core. And this is where our text for today begins. And we're looking at the the book of Ezra. It starts off, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Parasites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement, with my tunic and cloak torn, and fell on my knees with my hand spread out to the Lord my God, and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in His sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And He has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the command you gave through your servants the prophets when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us as a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who committed such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. So Ezra has found out something that really shocks him to the core. The people of Judah had put themselves in terrible danger. They were in danger of losing everything they had worked for because they were intermarrying with the people of the land. And this was something they had been clearly warned about. Uh, It was the reason for them being sent into exile in the first place. And now they were slipping back into idol worship. So Ezra has to do something, and he has to do it fast if he wants to avert disaster. So in today's lesson, we find three principles for dealing with sin, for helping to protect ourselves from this tiger of sin. The first main principle that we see is we need to recognize sin is a danger to all God's people. It doesn't matter how long we've been Christians. It doesn't matter whether we're on the church board or not. All of us have to be aware sin is a distinct possibility. It's something that we have to guard against. We live in a sinful world, but Paul makes it clear. As God's children, we are to live differently from those around us. I have a slide of Philippians 2, verse 5. Paul writes, Paul writes, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So what we see is God's people have always faced danger that comes from living in a hostile culture. And this is no different today. Now you can say, well, we live in the Bible Belt. You know, we live in a culture that honors the church. A, a strong majority of people attend church at least semi-regularly. But in a lot of ways, our culture is just as pagan as those during Ezra's time. When you look closely at what Americans truly believe and practice, they follow just as many idols as the people that Ezra was dealing with. God's people have always had to deal with a culture that promotes values and lifestyles opposed to God's law. So, if we're fitting in too comfortably with our society, if we find ourselves in agreement with those around us on most issues, this really should be a red flag to us. I have a slide from Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul says, Indeed, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so that tells us we are living in a hostile culture even today. Now, the exiles had returned uh, to find themselves surrounded by an utterly pagan culture. The people there were some of the original inhabitants of Canaan, and also these pagan people that were brought in from other parts of the Babylonian Empire. But these were people who worshiped multiple gods, multiple false idols, and their religious practices were truly evil. Uh, Many of these temples were fertility cults, where worship included having sex with temple prostitutes as a way to worship these gods. Their worship often included human sacrifice, even the burning of children uh, to their gods. And so the Israelites were told to be totally separate, to live lives of holiness, of purity, to live in obedience to the law. And they were to avoid this sexual immorality and idolatry that their pagan neighbors had taken for granted. This had permeated the culture to such an extent the only way for the children of Israel to avoid becoming impure was to limit their contact with the pagan people, to live as separately as possible. Now, no one is exempt from temptation, and we like to think that we've moved beyond temptation, that we've matured past the point where sin is truly an attraction to us. But this isn't true. If Jesus could be tempted, so can we. And it's interesting in this section, it wasn't the, the common people, the ordinary uh, people who had been led astray. This involved those who should have been holding themselves to a higher standard. Two groups are specifically mentioned, the priests and the Levites. These were those who ministered to the Lord. They were held to even higher standards of purity than the common Jewish person. For example, priests were forbidden from marrying prostitutes, profane women, or even divorced women. The leaders and officials were another group specifically mentioned as those taking part. These also were ones who should have set an example. So we can see, even if we hold positions of authority, we can still be attracted to and fall into sin. Those who have been in the church for a number of years may even be at a greater risk. There's a natural tendency to assume that we are immune to this. And we can see this in the example of King David. You know, the Bible tells us David was a man after God's own heart. And there aren't many biblical figures who earn such high praise from God. And yet we see David falling into sin with Bathsheba, adultery, and then finally murder. And so if David was at risk, why aren't we at risk? So we have to admit sin is attractive, you know, and we often don't want to To say this, we pretend sin really has nothing in it that's pleasurable, but that's not true. And these pagan religions, they were fertility cults. You know, the women of the temple would have sex with anyone who came in to worship. And this would obviously be an attraction to the men of Israel. And so they were given clear instructions through the law. uh, What was sinful, what was not. God did not leave them unsure of what to do. How to live a holy life was spelled out for the Israelites in black and white. And so they were clearly told, do not intermarry with these pagan people around you. And to protect us from sin, we are given Scripture. And we have to make sure we determine what's right and wrong based upon God's Word. Sin can be so deceptive, it's easy for us to rationalize our way around sin. And so we can use other standards to decide whether something is truly a sin. You know, a lot of times we like to think our emotions or our feelings can decide whether it's a sin. You know, whether we feel like it's a sin or feel like it should be a sin or not. And even our conscience doesn't protect us. You know, sometimes we have the idea, well, if I feel right about it, if I feel comfortable with it, then it couldn't be a sin. And while God in his mercy gives us consciences to to prick ourselves, that is not a foolproof way. And if the Bible clearly forbids something as sin, even if our conscience allows us to do it, we are not to take part in it. And so there are many ways that we can find ourselves rationalizing our way around our sins. We have to look at what the Bible tells us and what it tells us are sins and are not sins. Now, another resource given to the Jewish people was that they were uh, given a fence around them, so to speak, by telling them don't intermarry. God is setting up a boundary. He's setting up a fence not to restrict them, but to protect them. And it wasn't that God was opposed to intermarriage itself. You remember the story of Ruth. She was a Moabitess who married into the people of Israel and, in fact, became part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself. And so Scripture makes it clear God wanted all nations to come to him. I have a slide from Psalm 86. David writes, "...all the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord." they will bring glory to your name. So, the Old Testament makes it clear that God was not just interested in the people of Israel, but God knew the tremendous attraction that idol worship presented. And the best way to prevent, to resist temptation was to avoid it as much as possible. If the men took wives from their pagan neighbors, it would be very difficult to avoid being drawn into their idol worship. We see this exact same thing happening with Solomon, with the foreign wives he took, and they seduced him away uh, from the worship of the one true God. So today, we need to set up boundaries in our lives, barriers in our lives, to keep us out of situations where we would be tempted. Now, this is not to say that we are to shun those who aren't saved, to refuse to have anything to do with them out of a sense of self-righteousness. But... We've got to remember, we have very different values. We have different priorities than our unsaved neighbors. It's important to limit the role that unsaved people play in our lives. I have a slide from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul warns the Corinthians. He says, "...don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness?" Or, as the Living Translation says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. And so, we have to be careful in the relationships we set up, in how we interact with the unbelievers around us. Now, the second main point we see from our lesson today, if we are going to protect ourselves from sin, we have to be horrified and appalled at sin we have to realize the deadly destructiveness of sin. We can never take it lightly. If we fail to recognize the awfulness of sin, the tiger of sin devours us. And our society tries to trivialize sin. We tend to treat most sins as unimportant. Now, we don't deny that there are truly horrible sins out there. You know, child molestation, things like this. But, We believe a lot of sins aren't really that bad. And we believe it's really our decision whether we abstain from these sins or not. But this attitude means we treat God and His salvation with contempt. I have a quote here from J.C. Ryle uh, on a slide. And this quote says, Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. And I like this for what it reminds us of. When we do not treat sin as if it's sin, there's no way that we value what Christ has done for us in our salvation. Now, we can see from Ezra's reaction. He realized the true awfulness of sin. The description that the Bible gives us is of a man horrified to his very core by what he hears. He cannot believe what is being reported to him. The scripture tells us he is appalled. We don't use that word a lot, but it describes these strong emotions. To be appalled is to be greatly dismayed or horrified, to be affected by strong feelings of shock and dismay, to be filled with horror and consternation. We are shocked because something is exceedingly unpleasant or bad. And to show his, his shock and his horror Ezra does several things here. First, he tears his tunic or his cloak. Now, in their days, clothing was expensive. It was hard to get. It took a lot of labor. People did not have the tons and tons of clothing that we do today. And so tearing your clothes was something associated with deep mourning and grief. Uh, David tore his clothes When he hears that his sons have been killed by Absalom. Now, this wasn't true. It was a false report. Actually, only one son had been killed. But David gets these words and you can imagine, you know, the grief he feels. And so he tears his clothing. Uh, And so we, we understand what it means for someone to tear their clothing. And then it tells us Ezra pulled his hair from his head and his beard. And this is very unusual to do this. In fact, uh, this is the only time in the Old Testament where this is described. Now, it was common to, to shave your head as a sign of grief or repentance, but to pull handfuls of hair from your head, from your beard. You know, you can see this would have been extremely painful. And so it shows you the seriousness of Ezra. You know, this would have left him bleeding. And it would have really presented a horrifying appearance to those who saw him. And so Ezra sits on the ground. He sits like this until the evening sacrifices. So all day he sits here. And so this wasn't just crying for a few minutes and then getting over it. The picture we get is of someone really who is stunned, who is struck dumb by what's happening. Really almost comatose from the news. Now, we get uh, a contrast with this reaction of Ezra when we look at the activity of Jehoiakim, one of the last of the kings of Judah before the exile to Babylon. Now, this was during the time of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had dictated all of the prophecies of doom and destruction. He had dictated them to Barak, who had written them down on a scroll. And this was taken to the king and it was read to him but instead of the king tearing his clothes in sorrow and grief at what happened it says the king cut them off with a knife and threw the scroll not, not his clothes he cut the scroll with a knife and threw the remnants into the fire jeremiah 2630 or i'm sorry jeremiah 3624 uh, i have on the slide here it says The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. And so we can see they heard this message and weren't horrified or shocked at all. So our reaction can tell us a lot about ourselves. Which response do we have? You know, do we respond as Ezra did? Are we appalled by our sin? Or do we respond as King Jehoiakim did? Now, we have to realize sin is never a private matter. When we sin, the damage is not limited to us. And so it's interesting to me, when Ezra prays this prayer, he includes himself. Now, he clearly wasn't guilty. He had not taken a pagan wife. But throughout the prayer, he says, our sins, our guilt, we have forsaken the commands that you gave. And so Ezra recognized this sin affected the entire community. And today, we have to recognize sin has ripple effects in our lives. It spreads out from us to impact the lives of everyone around us. Now, we can make a lot of inadequate responses to sin. Sometimes we can embrace our sin. We can actually take pride in it. I have a slide here from Romans chapter 1. Paul is writing to the Romans and he says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And so the picture we get is of a person who's not ashamed of what he's doing. He's actually proud and approving of those who take part with him. We can have the idea that our sin makes us more sophisticated, more glamorous, you know, that really those who avoid sin are kind of, of childlike. And so we can see this effect or this response to sin. Now, some people respond to sin by minimizing it. They admit, yes, technically it's a sin, but then they argue. It doesn't really hurt anyone. It's not that bad. And so we can see this today uh, with many situations, but look at the situation of sexual activity outside of marriage. You know, the Bible clearly condemns this as wrong, and yet we have a lot of people in our culture practicing it, and who will say, you know, it's really not that big a deal. If two people are in love, it can't be that bad. Some will legitimize or rationalize their sin, they'll label it as something else. You know, it's not greed. It's just good business practice. It's not lust. It's healthy sexuality. You know, it's not lying. It's just necessary social behavior. And so we find other ways to talk about our sin. But all of these are inadequate responses. They shift the blame of sin. And so we can't blame others. We have to accept responsibility uh, for our sins. Now, The third main point that we find here is if we're going to protect ourselves from sin, we have to deal with it. We have to come to God in sincere repentance, confessing our sins without excuse or rationalization, throwing ourselves onto God's mercy. Now, repentance is not just for the unsaved, those who are not believers. As Christians, we find ourselves needing to repent. And in addition, as we mature, God gives us more spiritual light. And so a lot of times, we begin to recognize things in our lives as sin that we had never really thought of as sin before. And we need to deal with those issues. Now, in our society, too many professing Christians live lives that are identical to non-Christians. And they do this because they've never truly been saved. They've made a move toward Christ but they never have really repented of their sins, and so they never have experienced the salvation of Christ. I have a slide here of of two verses from Acts and Romans. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, You shall be saved. And so both of these verses tell us what's necessary to be saved. But the problem is, we don't really understand what it means when it says believe. You know, to believe is more than just agreeing that something is true. It's not just accepting it with our mind. The Greek word for faith is pistis, which contains elements of trust, but it also is the idea of faithfulness. Loyalty, reliability. Now, the Romans uh, personified this idea with uh, uh, the word for fidelity. And so to believe is to declare loyalty to a concept. It's being entirely committed to that. So to believe in the Lord Jesus is not just saying that you believe Jesus existed or that he is the Messiah but it's to declare loyalty to Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, It's being trustworthy and faithful to this concept. Uh, So to believe is more than just saying that Jesus existed. You know, James makes this point, and I have a slide here where he says, you know, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe this, and they shudder. So to James, the idea that faith is simply believing without obeying, this idea is ludicrous. You know, later on, and I have another slide here from James. He says, you know, that you foolish people who practice or believe that faith without deeds uh, is sufficient, uh, you are, are just foolish. He then goes on to examine the case of Abraham. Abraham was revered for his faith. It was his faith that made him righteous. But James points out it wasn't just that Abraham believed. It was that Abraham went ahead to sacrifice his only son, fully prepared to to sacrifice his son. And see, he was acting upon that faith. So uh, repentance begins by admitting our shame and our guilt. Uh, I have a slide here where... Uh, Ezekiel or not Ezekiel, uh, Ezra is, is praying and he says, I am too ashamed to lift up my face, uh, you know. And so he brings up this idea of shame, uh, the the painful admission or the painful feelings that we have when we realize we've done something wrong. And so guilt is the admission that we've done wrong. Shame is the understanding that we out, that we are wrong that in our inner hearts, that we are sinners, that we are corrupted. Now, without shame, it's easy to make excuses for our guilt. You know, I'm having a bad day. That's not really who I am. But shame is the acknowledgement. You know, it's not just what we've done, but it's who we ourselves are. And so we need to have shame. It's a concept we've lost sight of. We don't really like to condemn people anymore. But uh, the truth is that sin is not just something we do. Sin is a condition of our hearts. And we need shame to understand that, that it's not just our actions, but it's who we are. And so we have this aversion to admitting shame. You know, we're willing a lot of times to admit when we've done wrong, but we don't want to feel shame because of it. You know, this leads us to this idea of the apology that's not really an apology. You know, and this is rampant in our society. We offer these, uh, what we call apologies, where we admit something may have done wrong, but we don't really own it. We don't feel a sense of shame. You know, we use words like, I deeply regret, you know. And uh, my personal favorite is, mistakes were made. And this is something that U.S. presidents have been using all the way back to President Ulysses Grant after the Civil War. And so we will admit that we've done wrong, but we don't really own it by feeling shame about it. And so Ezra admits his guilt and also admits his shame that this is not just something, uh, an action on the outside, but this is an inner attitude uh, towards God. Now, repentance requires us that... Uh, it requires that we recognize God is right to judge us for our sins. Uh, Ezra recognizes the, the serious effects of sin in this life. And I have a slide here from his prayer where he talks about, you know, because of our sins, all of the effects and what has been done to us. Uh, he says, we are kings, our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. And so Ezra recognized God was totally righteous in sending this judgment. It was because of the sin of the people. And we have to recognize God is righteous when he judges us. You know, he gives us ample warning of the effects of sin. And he told the Israelites of the effects of sin way back in the book of Leviticus. He warned them, you know, that If they continued in their sin, it would mean they would be exiled from the land. And God also tells us in uh, the New Testament, in Galatians, where he says, you know, do not be deceived. Uh, God cannot be mocked. A man uh, will reap whatever he sows. And so God clearly lays it out to us. He is righteous when he judges us because he has told us exactly what's going to happen. You know, God is also faithful to send prophets God is, is faithful to letting us see the example of others. You know, the people from Judea, the southern kingdom, they had the example of what happened to the northern kingdom. They watched those northern tribes be conquered by the Assyrians and hauled off into exile. And yet they went ahead and continued to commit these same sins against God. So we have, we have God working in our lives And really, we can thank God for the prevenient grace that he puts into our lives to try to keep us from sin. You know, prevenient grace is grace that comes before. It's God acting in our lives long before we're even aware of it or we even know it. And so God is doing everything that he can to lead us away from sin. And one one of the best examples of this is how Jesus treats Judas. Now, you know who Judas was. He was the disciple who betrayed Jesus. And he had made his plans with the the temple leaders. He had sold Jesus out for the 30 pieces of silver. But he hadn't actually committed the deed yet. And we get to the events of the Last Supper. Jesus is eating with his disciples. And they were laying there. And it looks like that Judas was actually... Next to Jesus in a place of honor. So on one side of Jesus is the disciple that Jesus loved. And on the other side of Jesus is Judas. And Jesus tells his disciples, he says, one of you will betray me. And they begin asking him, you know, is it me? Am I going to be the one? And Judas asks him this question too. And Jesus takes a piece of bread And he dips it and gives it to Judas, telling him, the one I give this to is the one who will betray me. Now, the other disciples didn't understand this, but Jesus is making it very clear to Judas, I know what you're going to do. And so he's trying to give Judas an out. He's trying to get Judas to stop before he actually goes through with this. But of course, Judas doesn't heed that. Judas goes on, but Jesus is doing what he can to stop this action from taking place. And so repentance involves uh, admitting we have taken advantage of God's mercy. It involves admitting that we are abusing God himself. Now, we don't just admit that we've done wrong, but we have to recognize this wrong was done at someone else's expense, at God's expense. You know, Ezra admits on behalf of the people, he says, You, O God, have been have been very gracious to us. You brought us back from exile. And now, more or less, we have turned around and spit in your face, showing disrespect for you, showing disrespect for your mercy. And so when we repent, we're not just admitting to some generic fault or wrongdoing, but we are acknowledging that we have sinned against God himself. You know, I found in my own life, it's not that hard for me to apologize and to say, I'm sorry that I did such and such a thing. But it's very hard to go that other step and to say, will you forgive me? You know, to say, I'm sorry I did it, that's one thing. But to say, will you forgive me? It forces me to acknowledge, you know, I'm in your debt. I have done something specifically against you. And so repentance involves acknowledging sin as a personal affront to God. We're not sinning against a concept. We're sinning against a person, a person who has shown us great kindness and tender mercy. And then we turn around and rebuff him. So sin, all sin, is a horrible thing because we committing it against such a great and good God. And this was the lesson Ezra wanted the people to realize. Their sin was detestable because they were sinning against a God who had chosen them as his people. He had shown them such mercy throughout their history. He actually brought them back from their exile. And now they were going to treat him in this way. Now, As we look at these reactions of Ezra, it's interesting to contrast Ezra's reaction to the later reaction of Nehemiah. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, both of them are about this particular time period after the exiles have returned. And in fact, the Jewish scripture treats these two as one book. They don't split it up into two as we do. But Ezra and Nehemiah both faced the same problem. They both had to confront exiles who were intermarrying with the people of the land. And I have a slide here of Scripture that shows us their responses. Ezra 9.3 says, when Ezra heard this, he says, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Nehemiah, verse thirteen twenty-five, shows us his response. He says, I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. So it's interesting. Ezra pulled out his own beard. Nehemiah pulled the hair from the sinners themselves. You know, to deal with our sin, God had every right to act as Nehemiah did to call down curses on us, to pull out every hair on our head. But God did something totally unexpected. To deal with our sin, God pulled out His own hair. He gave His own Son. He made Himself suffer rather than make us suffer. Isaiah 53, 5 says, "...He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities." The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. So, from Ezra's prayer, we can see the deep sorrow and heartbreak that the sin of the exiles had caused. You know, sin is a horrible thing. And Ezra leaves us with a question that we need to ask ourselves. He says, What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again? And this is the question that we are left with. And that I want to leave with us this week. You know, hopefully from this lesson, we see the horrible effect of sin. And we realize how seriously we need to take sin. And as we go through this next week, you know, may we learn these lessons from Ezra. Let's conclude with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy to us, how you've forgiven us and cleansed us and brought us back to you. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to learn these lessons from Ezra. To, to thoroughly root out any sin that's in our lives, to repent, to ask your forgiveness, Lord, and never to treat sin as something uh, that is insignificant or something of no consequence. We give you praise and glory in your name. Amen.